Welcome to the podcast for a better life. I'm Chris Johnson. If you're interested, both the book and film version of A Better Life are available at theatheistbook.com. On today's episode, I speak with author David Madison about his new book, Ten Tough Problems in Christian Thought and Belief. A minister turned atheist shows why you should ditch the faith. David Madison was an ordained minister before becoming an atheist. He's now written a book, hoping to convince others to examine their own faith. I asked him about his background and what originally drew him to the ministry. I was raised on uh, the plains of northern Indiana. Um, my father was not especially religious. He was conventionally religious. It was something to do. My mother was the one who was very devout, although, believe it or not, in that era, I'll be candid, in the 1950s in northern Indiana, she was not a fundamentalist. So the, the Christian faith that she gave me had no element of guilt or hell in it at all. And while she never went to college herself, she was a voracious reader. And that's another gift she gave to me. And when I was a teenager, she bought for the house the 12-volume Interpreter's Bible, now, this was a product, product of liberal Protestant scholarship, and it was only usually bought by ministers. But here my mother had it in the house, and I devoured it. Uh, I thought it was just great. And that kind of set me on the course of wanting to study the Bible. Um, and after I went away to college, then it kind of dawned on me, gee, I could have a career uh, teaching Bible in academia. Um, in order to do that at the time, you really had to be an ordained minister, so I went through that as well, because I believed. Uh, but as I say, we were never fundamentalists. Uh, it was okay to be able to say of any passage in the Bible, well, you can't take that literally. In fact, that was one of my mother's mottos. Um, but uh, So I ended up at Boston University and uh, plotted my way through PhD studies in Old Testament, and um, that's how that happened. But I'd become an atheist by the time I finished uh, my PhD work, strangely enough. So what was your experience like as a minister when you were employed as a minister? Did you enjoy that work? Did you get something out of it? Well, um, I had never intended to be in the parish ministry, but that's what I had to go through in order to have a job and work toward my PhD. Um, I enjoyed the pastoral side of being a minister, that is, helping people, caring for people. Uh, one of the things I did was set up a network for widows and widowers in our town. Um, but um, the theology part of it was wearing thin very fast. And I came across an entry in my diary from those many years ago saying, I hate preaching about Easter. I hate preaching about Lent. I hate preaching about Christmas. Because um, the, the theology of it was just disappearing. Um, and then eventually I, I had to get out. Um, and I transitioned to a business career. But um, there were parts of the pastoral ministry that I enjoyed. But you know, after nine years and when my belief had eroded, then I had to make my escape. So let's talk about that eroding of belief. What was what was that experience like? Was there a spark which, which started you to doubt your faith? 
what was that experience like? <laughs> it's interesting you should use the word spark because in, in the prologue to my book, which is my um, which is autobiographical, um, I talk about the fact that, I mean, Boston University was a liberal seminary anyway, one of the most liberals in the liberal seminaries in the country. That's Martin Luther King's uh, alma mater. But um, at the time that I was attending Boston University, the big name theologian, which would mean nothing to anybody these days, was Karl Barth. He was a Swiss theologian uh, uh, and wrote everything he, he wrote in, in German. He wrote a 14-volume church dogmatics. You know, only people who are in academia could read it could stand to read it, even it's translated into English. And one day, my one of my theology professors, in a moment of cynicism, which he voiced openly, he said, "Nobody knows eight thousand pages about God, not even in German." You know that that set me to thinking. Well, how does anyone know even one page about God? And this this is this brings us back to the whole issue of epistemology. How do you know what you know? What are your methods of knowing? And when you, when you come right down to it, all the methods of knowing about God that people claim, uh, revelation, visions, prayer, meditation, whatever, none of those are verifiable. The bottom line is, which I began to see more and more, there are no data about God anywhere. And so that pushed my... Um, that pushed my belief further and further out the door. It was that moment, that statement that that person made about knowing anything about God, which sparked you to have doubts? That was one of the things. Um, and then one of my New Testament professors um, one day made the comment, what, after all, is the value of a 40-day resurrection? And by that he meant, supposedly Jesus rose from the grave, and according to the first chapter of the book of Acts, he then rose into heaven 40 days later. Even the Gospels aren't in agreement on that. But, um, you know, it's one thing to believe in the resurrection. A body comes back to life. And there are various nuances of that idea, even in the New Testament. Um, but then what happens to the body of Jesus after those 40 days? Well, the book of Acts says that he was lifted up on the clouds up into heaven. Well, we all know in our modern concept of cosmology, as one scholar said, anybody rising up from the earth would go into orbit. Um, and you have to, you just have to come down and answer the question, what happened to the body of Jesus? It didn't leave planet earth. He died again. I was buried somewhere, and the New Testament is involved in a colossal cover-up. It's lying. And so what is the value of a 40-day resurrection? And the more you dig into that question, uh, it, it just turns out to be, to be bankrupt. So that drove me further away from the Christian faith. So one question led to another question, which led to another question. Exactly. Now, there was another theologian at the time, uh, um, Paul Tillich, who was very much more liberal than Karl Barth, and um, he was very philosophical and very esoteric, and he even argued in one of his books that, strictly speaking, 
God cannot be said to exist because that would limit him. And I kind of clung to that as a way of holding on to what I was doing in the parish ministry. But even that wore thin, um, you know, to <laughs> give it up. So I eventually gave it up. At the same time, Chris, I was dealing with my own sexuality. I'd been married for 10 years. I had two kids. And I was raised in northern Indiana where homosexuality was just, it wasn't even on the grid. It was just, uh, I just got the message as I was growing up. It was not an option you could go for. Uh, we didn't <laughs> we didn't have Doogie Hauser back in those days, otherwise known as Neil Patrick Harris. Um, we didn't have those role models. We didn't have Ellen. Uh, and so, but after 10 years of marriage, I, I really had to, to deal with that as well. So being an atheist and being a gay atheist, that's really no place. There's really no place for that in the Methodist ministry. So I made the transition to the business world. Did being gay influence this journey towards atheism? No, um, not really. You know, I, I t these days I get very annoyed. I get very irked at the Christian church for having it for the most part especially in the Mormon manifestation and in the Catholic manifestation and the evangelical manifestation, having their heels dug in so much against homosexuality. But, you know, the, the traditional resistance to homosexuality, you know, it's deeply inbred in African culture and Asian culture. So you can't blame Christianity for that. But I do blame Christianity for, for not dealing with it better and for standing up against homophobia. There are many Christians who, who do take that position, who are, who do have an enlightened, civilized approach to it. Uh, but, you know, I do fault Christianity today for being so obstinate about it for the most part. So you spent most of your life then in the business world, yes. and now you've written this book. What, what inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, when I finished, uh, when I was out of the ministry, when I was, I, I got my PhD, I left the ministry. It was a struggle to get into the business world. I finally uh, found my niche there. But, you know, Chris, this study of the Bible was was deeply entrenched in my, in my brain. And uh, I still loved it as an academic exercise. There are still so many curiosities about where the Bible came from. You don't have to believe in it. It's like studying... Homer or Aristotle or any of the Greek classics, you can still study the document from the ancient world um, and get enjoyment from that. And so I never did actually ever give up on that. It, it lay dormant in my mind for quite a few years, but then it came back to engage me again. And, um, you know, as the, year go, as the years have gone by, I keep saying to myself, how are people still taking Christianity seriously? There are so many problems with it and that my thinking began to coalesce and I began to make notes and finally they fell together into 10 broad categories and the most common question I get these days is only 10 problems and I say yes th that's an exaggeration but I sweep so many different problems into these 10 categories 10 categories it's lists of 10 are so popular uh, anywhere you turn these days. So I thought that's a good format for approaching uh, the problem of Christianity and how do you falsify Christianity? How do you demonstrate to rational people 
this is not something that is tenable. It's not something that can survive close scrutiny. It is, it is very falsifiable. Are these 10 problems the same problems that you dealt with when you were becoming an atheist? Kind of, but uh, the, the categories of 10 uh, fell into place much later. But there are elements of all 10, I think, indeed, which were bothering me as I was, um, as I was in the ministry. Um, for example, the ninth chapter I listed as the ninth problem is um, the problems with, with Jesus. The title of the chapter is, What a Friend We Don't Have in Jesus. If you just look at so many of the texts right there in full view in the Gospels, most sane, rational people who aren't trying to pile on excuses say, why in the world would anybody take that seriously? And when you look at Jesus objectively, he wasn't that great. Uh, and I commonly say he was just overrated. Uh, in the 14th chapter of Luke, for example, he, he says point blank, you cannot be one of my disciples unless you hate your mother and your father, your brother and your sisters, your family. Um, well, what's that, what's that all about? And there's so many other similar texts which, which, for which he gets major demerits. There are many other I suspect, moral leaders in the history of the world who outrank him. How did you address those questions, those passages in particular, when you were a minister? Oh, the favorite game for people in the church is to just overlook them or to finesse them. Uh, oh, well, Jesus really didn't mean that, as if the layman or the pastor who says Jesus really didn't mean that, as if that person has a has a fabulous command of ancient Aramaic or ancient Greek to know exactly what Jesus did mean. They have an idea of Jesus embedded in their mind, which is brilliant and good and wonderful. I love my Jesus. And it's, it's just a matter of, of discarding the text that you, and rationalizing them away in some way that they don't interfere with holding on to your cherished view of Jesus. Do you think that's the biggest misconception people have about the Bible or Christianity in particular, even those in the United States who are not necessarily religious themselves, but think that Jesus was this peace-loving version that, they, that they've seen represented by others in Christianity? Selling Jesus is a multi-billion dollar business in this country. Just think of the megachurches and the televangelism. They promote an ideal Jesus, as the scholar Bert Ehrman has said, the Jesus of their imaginations. They're counting on people not really reading the Gospels, reading the fine print. Um, there are some people who do dig into it, but then there are hundreds of Bible commentaries that, uh, that make excuses for all these, these negatives in the teaching of Jesus and in the teaching of Paul. Um, they get away with it because people are not curious. I've said over and over again in the six years, five, six years I've been writing this book, I've never, ever, not once, literally not once, Chris, have I, has a Christian said to me, really, 10 problems? What are they? They're not interested. What has the reaction from Christians been to your work? Well, they, it's kind of condescending. Um, uh, they're kind of surprised that an ex-minister would, uh, would become an atheist. And my response is, of course, um, you can read the story in the book when it comes out, how I made that transition. 
Uh, you know, a friend of mine in Indiana from decades ago, he just, you know, the standard, well, I wish you luck with the book, but uh, certainly no commitment that he's going to read it. And on my Facebook page that's dedicated to the book, you know, it's interesting, in the last year or so, there's not been so many frontal attacks as I had. I put up the the Facebook page in 2012, and for a long time, I would have Christian trolls coming on there very angry, very upset, throwing so many arguments at me. And my response was, I never said this page was for debate. I've been debating with Christians for 30 years, and I'm tired of doing that. If you want to find a Facebook page where you can debate with atheists, you can find it, but it's not here. I, I did get quite a bit of flack from Christian trolls, but that has diminished. You said that you enjoyed going through the Bible as a literary text. Have you gotten anything useful out of your study uh, of the Bible as a literary text as opposed to a sacred text? Yeah, that would be very hard to say. I've, I've attacked it from an intellectual point of view, but there's so, really so very little in the Bible that that is of value. It has a certain poetic attractiveness to it in some portions. Um, but the, the scholar Hector, uh, Hector Avalos has said quite brilliantly, he says, if 99% of the Bible went away, who cares? Uh, most of it is just, it's not worth reading. And Christians who, who make the mistake of saying, you know, I'm going to read the Bible cover to cover. I'm going to get through it. I'm going to do it on the the, the one chapter a day plan. Uh, it'll take me a year or so, but I'll get through it. It doesn't take them very long to get into it to realize what an uphill battle it is because there's just not the, that much there that's certainly not morally uplifting. I mean, there's some good stories. It's entertaining. After all, the book of Genesis was the folklore of the, of the Hebrew people. There's a lot of entertaining things in the book of Genesis. It's, it's a fun read, but I mean, the charter document of the Christian faith is Paul's letter to the Romans. It's a horrible book. Very few people can read it. It's dense. It's obtuse. Uh, his thinking was so scattered. Uh, yet there are scholars who spend their lives studying Paul's letter to the Romans. And it doesn't take long to, to plow into the Gospels before you run into things that are very off-putting. <laughs> I, I guess I've spent a good portion of my life studying something that <laughs> isn't worth studying. That's a confession, isn't it? When you were coming up with these 10 tough problems, did you look back at the experience that you had in losing your own faith to shape these problems? Because one of the things you're trying to do, obviously, is uh, let Christians know that they should rethink their own faith. So how did your experience influence the shape of the book or your arguments? Well, I think pretty profoundly my own experience 10 years in the ministry and seeing how Christians relate to each other and seeing how the churches relate to each other. Um, for example, the fifth chapter of the book is entitled, Which Monotheism? Which Christianity? And on the second part of Which Christianity, in the small town where I grew up, there were four congregations, three Protestant, one Catholic. In the town where I ended up, my first ministry was in Rockport, Massachusetts. And there were easily a half a dozen churches there. What does that say about the truth of the Christian faith? These people can't get along. There was a survey done in 2001, I believe. It showed at that point there were 33,000 different Christian denominations, sects, divisions, brands, 
what does that mean? What does that tell you? But just experiencing that uh, in the ministry, how can your eyes not be open and say, what's going on here? We can't even agree about Jesus. You know, you can have these big ecumenical meetings, Chris, where these these high-level clerics get together and they have all these strange costumes and they put on a brave show of ecumenism and, oh, we love each other. But you know darn well they don't agree. You, know, you could count on one hand the number of things they agree on about Christianity. It's all for show. It's, it's phony. My purpose is to jolt people out of Christianity. Will I reach the evangelicals? No. Maybe a few, but that's highly unlikely. So that's why I came up with the subtitle, A Minister Turned Atheist. I wanted atheist in the title. Uh, shows why you should ditch the faith. I wanted a punching word. This is my agenda. This is what I'm trying to do. I, I'm not trying to mince words. And the book is heavy, I admit, on ridicule, sarcasm. I had maybe 10 people that I sent the manuscript to, uh, to be critical readers. And very few of them said, oh, that's too harsh. Ooh, oh, you don't want to say that. Um, so... And I'm, I'm thankful that my publisher was uh, willing to keep the title. It had been the working title for three or four years before I hooked up with the publisher. So I'm, I'm pleased that the title remains. If somebody had handed your book to you when you <laughs> were studying to be a minister, what effect do you think it would have had on you? What would you have thought of your own book? You know, in, in my prologue, I address kind of that issue. I'd say, gee, I wish at that time when I was in seminary, I wish that Sam Harris had been around and uh, Christopher Hitchens. Who knows whether I would have paid attention to them or not. But, um, you know, Chris, it's only been in the last in the last decade and a half that the atheist publishing surge has really taken off. And I think that's had a, quite an impact in getting people and moving that figure up to the number of people in this country who identify themselves as nuns, um, having no belief at all. Uh, I like to think that the atheist publishing surge has had something to do with that. Um, but, you know, I was enough of a, um, of a thinker and an explorer that if I had had my book or Dawkins or Hitchens at that time, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of disappointing also to know that at that time, there were atheist authors, but in my small town in Indiana, who knew? H.L. Mencken was a prominent author. In 1932, he wrote Treatise on the Gods, which was a, which was a hard-hitting, high-impact book against Christianity. Um, Mark Twain was a cynic. He had no use for Christianity. Of course, that was that part of Mark Twain's background was was not brought out to us. You know, also Andrew Carnegie, uh, Thomas Edison, these people were not believers, certainly not believers in Christianity. And who ever heard of Robert Ingersoll when I was growing up? Mark Twain, yes, but Ingersoll, no. Maybe if I'd had a little bit more brush with these with these earlier authors, um, I would have been uh, rescued from my. Uh, Christian destiny, so to speak. So obviously you you want to change people's minds with this book. How has writing the book changed your views at all? Have you learned anything from writing this book? Oh, yes, I, I definitely have. Um, just digging into the Gospels more deeply, uh, certainly digging 
more deeply into the thought of Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, who again is a giant figure in the founding of Christianity. I've learned a lot more about how bad his thought was. I've also learned more about these other faiths, uh, the other uh, the other major monotheisms. I've learned more about the various brands of Christianity. I've certainly learned a little more about Catholicism, but uh, yeah, it's a bit of, well, what I had to do to get ready to write this book, I had a reading list that was probably 50 or 60 books that I selected that would help guide my research in this uh, in this endeavor. So I put myself on a reading schedule, you know, and rigorously was trying to keep to this reading schedule. I think there were probably 50 books left on the list when I finally said, enough already, uh, I got to write the book. And so I, I finally, you know, took the plunge and began the writing itself. So I was going to ask, what do you hope people get out of this book? But I, you can tell even from the title of the book itself that you're hoping that people will reevaluate their faith or even the way they see the Bible, even if they're not a Christian, even if they're a nun, that they'll look at the Bible or look at Christianity in a different way. Is that your intention? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a spectrum of the people who are sitting in the pews every Sunday. Some of them are really committed firm in their faith, and there are others who who are not so sure. They're educated people, they're thinking people, and all you have to do is raise a few of these questions, and it, it starts the process of thinking. I know the story has gone around of Greta Christina, I believe it was, who at an atheist conference said, I'd like to see a show of hands. Who here in this, con- in this room used to be dedicated Christians? And a huge show of hands. In other words, there were a lot of people who finally who finally started thinking, and I, part of my purpose of my book is to get people to do that. You can the, the table of contents of this book is phenomenal. It's very detailed, and you can look at it and dip in where you want. People who might have a curiosity about this or a curiosity about that. I believe that people are not quite so firm in their faith as they might want us to believe, and it only takes a few really big hard knocks to get people to question, really, there's a good God paying attention to me? How do these how do these things happen? You know, I would like to do a survey of the parents at the Sandy Hook School. What has this had, what did the massacre, what impact did it have on their faith? You know, quite a few years before Sandy Hook, there was a similar massacre at a school in Scotland where 16 children were massacred in their school. And flowers went up all around the school after it was over, you know, in the days following. And there was a teddy bear holding flowers with a little sign around its neck. March 16, 1998, the day God overslept. Now, that's a lot more bearable than saying God is dead. But the person who wrote that sign had a little bit of cynicism. They weren't quite so sure about where God was all in, in all of this. Now, that person may have gone back to deeply entrenched faith, but it's, I think it's just as likely that that person ended up saying, you know, this doesn't make sense. I'm out of here. Take your religion. Um, in fact, one of the reasons I think Europe is as secular as it is today in comparison with this country is World War II. Well, World War I, for that matter, the Battle of Verdun 
something like 300,000 men killed at the Battle of Verdun alone. But then in World War II, 50 million people were killed. I think that kind of experience knocks the starch out of God is good theology. And that's why I think one of the reasons that Europe is as secular today as it is. So I'm hoping to reach the people who are willing to think and have an open mind. In the same way that you did when you were questioning your faith, you had a couple of knocks which got you questioning things which led to being an atheist. Exactly. You've got to be willing to think about it. You've got to be willing to, willing to have an open mind and be willing to, to dive in and ask the hard questions. But the modus operandi of religions and churches is don't ask questions. We have the truth all neatly packaged here and just go with it, have faith, end of story. A lot of people now these these days aren't willing to run with that. You mentioned before that you really enjoyed the pastoral element when you were a minister. Do you regret your time in the ministry? Well, certainly on a, on a major level, I regret it. That was a major detour for my career. I should never have done it. Um, but, I mean, it's part of my past. And, you know, do I wish I might have chosen another career and not on that major detour? Yes. But now today, because of that experience, I am equipped to write this book. And I guess that's the ultimate good outcome. Chris, I'm looking back at my diary from those days and the hours and hours and hours I spent studying Aramaic and studying Greek and studying Hebrew, which were all required, and studying German, which were all required for my doctoral program. Uh, and then there's references to the books I'm reading I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, the the, <laughs> the hours that were devoted to that stuff. Um, something much better to do with my time. Do you feel like you're reading the diary of another person? Absolutely. <laughs> Interesting you should say that. I recognize so many of the of the names, but almost none of the events <laughs> that I wrote about do I remember. Inter very interesting you should say that because that was so long ago. That was Need I say, should I confess, that was 48 years ago. And um, that's, a lot, <laughs> that's a lot of years for things to be forgotten. Apart from the fact that you've learned that Christianity is not true, how has becoming an atheist changed your life? Do you think being an atheist has made you a better person? Do you think of things differently now that you're an atheist or since you became an atheist? I think I'm a better person because I'm I'm more tuned in to the good that people have to do without relying on a theology. I think I'm a better person because I'm not held back by by false beliefs. And I think that's what we all hope for. And when people move over to the side of uh, humanism, secularism, atheism, to be um, to be better people because of it. I mean, think of all the time that people waste. Even if you only want to count Sunday mornings, that's a time wasted. It could be spent on other things. But people spend so much time devoted to religious activities. Well, thank you so much, David, for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for allowing me to make a case for my book and what I'm trying to do. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, please visit patreon.com slash theatheistbook. Special thanks to Michael Trollin for his support. For more information about the book and film versions of A Better Life, or the 2016 screening tour, visit theatheistbook.com.